Welcome to the Iona Us podcast from the Iona Journal of Economics. I'm Vivan and joining me on today's episode of the podcast is a very special guest, Professor Angela Reedish from our very own Vancouver School of Economics. A little bit about her. Angela has been a professor of economics at UBC since 1982. Her research focuses on the history of monetary and banking systems in Europe and North America. Some of her accolades include serving as special advisor to the Bank of Canada, president of the Canadian Economics Association, and being a part of the editorial board of the Journal of Economic History. Her most recent work focuses on indigenous nations and the development of North American economies. She was also my professor for Econ 102, which definitely tops the list. Angela, thank you again for joining us on the podcast. How are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing great. Thanks very much for having me. Fantastic. To start us off, I have a couple of fun questions for our audience to get to know you. Ready? Okay. Here's the first one. On a sunny day in Vancouver, what are the two places you're most likely to be found? And it can't be the VSC building. Mm, okay. Uh Where I'd like to be found is probably either in my kayak uh, somewhere off Bowen Island or in my garden. That's amazing. Wonderful. If you weren't a professor, what would you want to work as? Hmm. I guess I always thought of uh, being a public sector economist, just because sometimes when you're in the ivory tower, it seems distant from what's actually happening on the ground, and it'd be nice to actually make decisions. Uh, So being a public sector economist would be interesting. And then I've also often wondered why I wasn't a gardener, which is what I like to do. I, I absolutely love that. Um, and lastly, what would your spirit animal be and why? Mm, spirit animal. Okay, I'm going to say an eagle. I'm not even, I'm sure is a bird an animal? Yes. Uh, I, I think, firstly, I see eagles around a lot uh, around here. We're so lucky. And they always look uh, like free and they soar and powerful. And I just think, yeah, that's sort of good. So you as a person, you'd want to be free and soar like an eagle? I do already, but yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Angela, for sharing the real you with us. I feel like a lot of us forget professors are also human beings outside of the classroom. Uh, moving on, why don't you tell us about your undergraduate experience at Wilfrid Laurie University? Were you sure from the very beginning that you wanted to study economics? I think when I, um, before I went to university, when I was trying to figure out what to study, uh, I was, there was a lot of pressure to study math and physics, but I wanted to study something people-oriented. But in my first year, I did not do well. And back then, if you did badly in first year, You couldn't uh, get into economics, but you could get into the business school. So I actually did second year business, uh, but then I did well in second year. And so then I got into economics. And I think as I didn't very much like first year, <laughs> now I'm teaching it, but I didn't like first year, but I did like the idea that you're, the use of models to understand things that are so important, like resource allocation and who's rich and who's poor. I think that always really resonated with me. See, now I have a sub question. What would you say to a struggling first year today? I guess partly, I mean, I might sort of try to 
figure out what the source of the struggle was. But I would also say, if if what you really want to know is is kind of how the economy works, whether it's the macro economy, which is of course where I kind of am most interested, um, just hang in there. And in second year or third year, it, it, it's going to make sense, and it's definitely worth doing. Just keep on, uh, because if that's what you want to know, then economics is a great subject to study. First years, you've heard Angela. You got to keep on going. As someone who has dedicated a lifetime to economics, how do you think the field has changed since you first entered it as a young undergrad student? It's changed so much. When I um, when I began, I actually thought I'd become a development economist. But at that time, development economics... So I actually went and I worked in Papua New Guinea for two years. And then I came back and, and went to grad school. But the kind of development economics that was happening at grad school was so divorced from what I'd seen when I was in Papua New Guinea that I just thought, okay, this makes no sense. I think if I was doing development today, I think development today is the most exciting field. So it, that's one area that there's been huge change. And um, but and then in sort of small ways, there's been change in the sense of, I, I, I guess the biggest change in the last decade probably is in empirical methods, right? Is in the use of big data. And um, certainly that's true in economic history. We see economic history papers with millions of data points. And so, uh, and the same in, in macro and in all kinds of industrial organization applications. So I think the availability of data has been one of the big changes. Yeah, definitely. Building off of that, what challenges do you think the future holds for our budding economists in this building and across the world? Well, challenges, uh, what makes economics... Is it, one of the things for, uh, as for economists today is that they have to know a lot of tools, right? I think if I was a student today, for sure I'd be studying GIS, right? I'd really... Because to me, especially in the area like economic history, but all development economics, but in lots of different areas... Having mapping skills is really, uh, and, and understanding spatial correlations is, it's a big change from how economics was 20 years ago, but I think, so you need GIS skills, you need uh, big data skills, you need, so there's a lot of skill tools that you need, so I think that is a challenge. On the other hand, I think um, economics has become more interesting, so there's, there's an upside as well. Isn't it always always easier to have economics all over the internet? Like, have you seen the number of websites we have that help students understand what economics is? I think yes. No, I think that's great. I think it it, it helps students. It helps profs too, right? But um, and actually, I'm now following a course in African economic history put on by the London Business School that has twenty seven thousand people registered in that course so that's a huge uh that that means that there's the possibility for people to get cutting-edge research from the researchers like nathan nunn um and, and it's all over the world right so i think in that sense the internet has been a huge uh yes well lastly what prompted you to join the vancouver school of economics well as you noted it was quite a long time ago um but, and as with most people, when I got my PhD, I went on the job market and this was the best job I got offered. But I will say that I thought about it 
twice because it seemed pretty intimidating to join what even then was a really great uh, economics department. And so I, I thought about it. But when I came here, people just seemed so interested in economic history. And I just thought, okay, I'm up for this challenge. I'm sure a lot of our grad students can relate. Next up, we have some questions about your work as an economist. So in 2000, you published a book titled Bimetallism, an Economic and Historical Analysis. Could you tell our listeners what bimetallism is and why it was important? Very good. I don't think it was the most catchy title, but bimetallism referred to a monetary system. Uh, many people have heard of the gold standard, where money was maybe issued by a bank or by a central bank, but it was backed by the gold. Under a bimetallic standard, money was backed by either silver or gold. And you can probably see immediately that there's going to be a problem because it's backed by silver and it's backed by gold. And what if the price between those two things changes? Then the system's going to be very unstable. So, but the reason that you would have a system despite that is that when people were using coins, they a, a gold coin would just be too valuable to buy a loaf of bread, but equally, silver would be too heavy if you were making thousand-pound payments or a thousand-dollar payments. So, because of the technology of money, uh, you kind of needed you had to accept this problem of the different moving relative price of gold to silver in order to have a monetary system that enabled payments for all different kinds of payments. So. Oh, and that was that, that kind of bimetallic system was in place certainly in Europe. From, I mean, my book actually starts in I think 800 AD with Charlemagne, uh, and the system remained in place until the 19th century. So it, the gold standard lasted for less than a century, and this system lasted for many centuries. And I felt like people didn't understand why it was there and why it changed in the end. I think. Uh, today, when we think about uh, central banks, we think of fiat money. It's not backed by anything. But interestingly, the, um, the introduction of Bitcoin and what that means for monetary systems has led people to really question, like, what is money and uh, does money need to have backing? And so these questions of monetary systems have really risen to the fore quite recently. That was enlightening. So building off of my last question, could you tell us about the process and the challenges of writing scholarly literature set in a historical context? It's very different than what we're used to seeing in econ classes today. I think I, one of the reasons that I love economic history is that it's a very diverse field and it does let you cover centuries and countries and topics. So I really, uh, I think that's was when, as I said at the beginning, when I had considered becoming a development economist focused on monetary economics and monetary policy in emerging economies, um, when I decided that development economics wasn't really the field for me, I kept the monetary economics piece and uh, moved into monetary history. I think that some economic history is really very similar to development economics or to other fields in economics. Um, you posit a hypothesis, you have some data, and you test your hypothesis. So there's many ways in which the empirical methods used are the same, 
um, and the hypothesis testing is the same. So there's many areas of economic history that aren't that different from what you would read in any other uh, subdiscipline. But there are areas, areas of economic history that are much more qualitative, where text analysis is much more um, sort of central. So I think that uh, it, yeah, it's it's more diverse, perhaps, than other uh, disciplines in economics. In terms of challenges, it very much depends on kind of what you're doing. Uh, but data are harder to find, so um, and constrain the kinds of questions you can answer and being clever with the data therefore is at a premium i can imagine so it would be difficult to find the right data sets you know in the past right yeah now some people argue that actually there's better data in the past i that's not been my experience but there are things where today the data would be confidential but historical data are available so you can use historical data i think for me for much of the time that i've been doing uh, research I thought about um, macroeconomics, that if you weren't a historian, you were kind of looking like, say the data, you, you just download some data from 1970 on, but that was all kind of one monetary regime almost. And so you wouldn't, there would be no identifying variation. Whereas if you're doing history, you get to see things change a lot and that change is identifying variation. And so that I think makes history a powerful tool. Wonderful. Moving on, it would be an understatement to say that you spent a lot of time looking at central banks. In 2012, you wrote an article titled Central Banks Past, Present, and Future. So I ask, how has the role of a central bank changed over the years? And more specifically, how has the Bank of Canada changed? I think central banks have changed a lot since... uh Typically, they were, and, and every bank has its own story. So the Bank of England was founded in part to fund a government. The Federal Reserve System of the United States was funded to deal with financial crises. The Bank of Canada, I've argued, was founded in 1933 because it was the depths of the Great Depression and the government didn't know what to do. And they just thought, okay, if we found a central bank, it'll look like we're doing something. And they really didn't have any great how is it going to change things but they just thought we we, we should do this and also the, the record shows that the in the early 1930s a whole or maybe the 1930s a whole bunch of kind of nation building things happened in Canada the statute of westminster gave the canadian government greater authority over its external uh, military activity Air Canada's um, predecessor was founded. The CBC, I think,'s predecessor was founded. So it was a decade where people were saying, like, we're a grown-up country, we should have grown-up country things, including a central bank. So every central bank kind of had its own story. Um, and what they did really depended on what was needed at the time they were founded. But today, almost all central banks are actually very homogeneous. Um, at the time the Bank of Canada was established, Everybody, they weren't on the gold standard, but everybody thought there would be a return to the gold standard and that the central bank's job was to issue money, but that that money would be gold-backed. Same with the other central banks. But today, central banks issue money and they're not backed at all. It's what's called fiat money. So that's very different. Um, but I think in a way, for a lot of, for much of the time, and especially today, central banks are... Uh, I mean, today, central bank uh, 
provides a medium of exchange, a method of payment that we can have feel secure in using, and also um, manages uh, so manages inflation targeting or sort of what's going to happen to the price level in the future, and also responds to financial crises and manages stabilization policy. And as I say, I think most central banks in the world today do that, and so they're quite homogeneous. Would you say that that puts central banks at the forefront, especially at a time like we are in, a bit of a, an economic crisis, to say the very least, um, as compared to when they started out and it was uh, a more fake it till you make it type response? That's a good question. Certainly, I think the centrality of central banks uh, has led at various points in time, not so much today, but not so long ago, to questions about their legitimacy that central banks do have a lot of power, and yet they're run by unelected officials. And so is that appropriate uh, when other powerful levers of the economy are actually managed, at the top at least, by elected officials? Um, I'm sorry, what was the rest of the question? I think think we got the gist. We got the gist. (laughs) Good. One final question for you. What do you feel about the rise of cryptocurrency? Is it a fad here to stay? It's a little bit dicey in the eyes of policymakers. I th- that's, a, of course, a question that we could spend an hour or two on. Um, in terms, I think that the biggest, it, it's possible that with respect to monetary matters, as opposed to smart contracts uh, or even decentralized finance. With respect to money, I think that the cryptocurrencies have really provoked central banks to think about how, whether and how they should issue digital currency. So that instead, today, the only money issued by a central bank that you and I could hold is an actual paper note. And that seems very old school. And so central banks are thinking, well, if we want to stay relevant, shouldn't we give every household the option to have digital central bank money? That's very much a debate going on at every central bank. And I think that's um, a lasting impact of uh, the the Bitcoin and the interest in cryptocurrency. In terms of other sort of privately issued um, cryptocurrencies, whether they're stable coins or unbacked monies like, uh, like Bitcoin, it seems that regulatory authorities have real questions about them. And so whether, if we think about money as that unit of account, store of value, medium of exchange, it doesn't seem yet that cryptocurrency, privately issued cryptocurrencies or unbacked cryptocurrencies will um, manage to do that. But I think central banks are watching and A, regulating those things and B, moving forward on their own to tr- really try to... Um, not have cryptocurrencies take over. Finally, though, on that front, the how cryptocurrencies will be able to, whether or not cryptocurrencies will be able to fill a void in a situation of global unrest is still an open question. Do you feel then that cryptocurrencies are leading the way rather than um, sparking a revolution where everybody switches to cryptocurrency? I think that's right. I think they expanded the what was seen. I, th- I mean, I think often innovation sparks innovation, right? And I think that central banks really thought, oh, we have to evolve and do something. Um, 
one monetary historian I know said Bitcoin was the most interesting thing to happen in monetary in monetary history in 150 years, right? So it was really seen as this potential game changer, even if you're not going to end up with Bitcoin, but we're going to end up with a different monetary landscape than pre-Bitcoin. That was incredible. I am sure we could have spent an hour discussing this at length, but that's all the time we have today. So thank you, Angela, for giving us a glimpse into your life and enlightening us with your insights. This is Vivan at the Iona Oz podcast signing off. See you next time. <laughs>